0: queer rights sessions qws podcast in partnership with blani books and art and port fairy i'm your host rob aka rwr mcdonald and this is a words and nerds spinoff series thanks danny i'm coming to you from the land of the wurundjeri people and i'd like to pay my respects to their elders past present and emerging each month QWS podcast will bring you reviews, shout-outs of LGBTIQA plus writers, and feature an interview with a queer writer from our rainbow communities. And now on with the show. Jonathan Butler is a writer and content producer living in um, Melbourne, Australia. Jonathan's debut book, The Boy in the Dress, was published by firm Press in February 2022 and was shortlisted by the Age Book of the Year, 2022 non-fiction he has said researching his ancestor's story has ignited his passion for queer history jonathan's work has appeared in the guardian arts hub and Mianjin. welcome jonathan thanks for having me rob as part of qws podcast we have an opening question which we ask all our guests which is how has your work influenced your identity
1: um, I'm very glad that you pre-warned me for this question because it is a big one. Um, and I have two answers, I think. My first answer would be sort of while writing the book and since it's come out. Both have had a very profound impact on my identity. I guess, in a way, this book is about how uh, my family's story and my research has shaped my identity as a queer man. The book is about Warwick Sydney Mill. He uh, was my grandmother's cousin, and family rumor that he was gay and that his um, murder was because of his sexuality. So, you know, he always had a really big part of my uh, my life growing up. So, researching um, not just what happened to him, but you know, the treatment of queer people throughout history um, had a really profound impact on me. It was it was really interesting to sort of find people from history who I actually shared a lot with. Um, You know, when you're younger, you kind of assume that, you know, you're alone and that there's no one else in the world who's like you. So that was really affirming. And I also learned a lot about, you know, uh, what horrors had happened in the past and, you know, all the horrible things that still happen and that we need to improve. So that really gave me a strong sense of who I am as a a gay man, I suppose. Um, The second part of that answer is since it's come out, And I think a lot of writers in the room can probably understand the hesitation to call yourself a writer. For a very long time I was like, I'm a writer. I wouldn't wouldn't even tell people I was writing it. I was just too ashamed. Um, And then I finally did and I'm so glad that I did because, you know, people had wonderful ideas and wanted to hear about the project. And then now that it's finally out, it's nice to be able to call myself a writer. Um, that's a big part of my identity now. And yeah, as you mentioned, since I got shortlisted from uh, the Age Book of the Year as well, that's been a really nice nod and even less concerned with calling myself a writer. So that's, yeah, part of my identity as well.
0: Congratulations again on your, your shortlisting, which is fantastic. And oh, thanks. Uh, absolutely hear you with the calling yourself a writer. Yeah, it's, it's tough. Um, It's its own coming out process that we go through. It's very true. So I just wanted to read for um, everyone, uh, the boy in the dress, the blurb. On a balmy Townsville night in 1944, a young serviceman, Warwick Meal, is found murdered. The army and police do not or will not conduct a proper investigation and history forgets the killer until now. Nearly 80 years on, Warwick's descendant, Jonathan Butler dusts off the case and chases the leads that were there all along. The boy in the dress exhumed secrets of life on the home front during World War II, where tensions between soldiers boiled over, new expressions of sexuality flourished, and the threat of invasion catapulted the status quo into disarray. The truth of this family legend and this little-known chapter in Australian military history is more complex and engrossing than anyone could have imagined. Congratulations again, Jonathan, on the boy in the dress. For those who haven't read it, it's very compelling and it's such a interesting mashup of family history, memoir, Australian military history, queer history. So, can you tell us how the book
1: came about? Sure. So, um, it really started right back when I was basically as long as I can remember, like five years old, there was a photograph uh, that hung on my mother's bedroom wall and that was of a little boy and a little girl playing dress-ups and it's on the inside cover. The little boy is uh, wearing a dress, has a doll, has a parasol and a hat and the little girl is wearing a suit. It's a classic sort of game of mothers and fathers or something. And the reason I was so drawn to it is I've, I've always known that I was gay, but I was... Very ashamed of it from a young age. Um, certainly couldn't talk about it with my family. Didn't see it anywhere on TV. Didn't talk about it at school. Didn't know anything. So, you know, even though it was just one photograph, it had a profound impact on me. Um, I have three older sisters. There was lots of dresses and dolls and Barbies lying around, and I really loved playing with them. So, you know, looking at this photo of Warwick, I was like, oh, maybe I, you know, there's other boys who like to do this. Maybe I'm not alone. Maybe it isn't. I don't need to be as ashamed of it as i you know as I was um so yeah I've always had this sort of perceived relationship I guess um with Warwick when I got older I was in I was around 16 or 17 my mum was a hardcore family history enthusiast so just when ancestry.com came um, online I see a few nods in the audience um Uh, She was a big fan of that and basically because there was so many family secrets, you know, she had heard all these rumours and she was really excited about the prospect of finding some facts behind these family rumours and I I share a lot with my mum and I also was drawn into that and both of us, you know, uh, really got into it and one of those family secrets was what happened to Warwick. So... Yeah, Warwick, when he was just 20 years old, was murdered in Townsville in 1944. Um, The killer was never found. The motive was never identified. And mum believed that uh, Warwick was gay and that his murder was a result of a gay hate crime. The reason she came to that conclusion, a few reasons. One, there was a family rumour that he was gay and that's um, her. So my mother's mother was, you know, very... Uh, didn't like talking about it, so it was very hard to get any facts about what actually happened. So mum was very excited about the prospect of finding some answers on Ancestry and I also got really involved. So, yeah, from a very young age researching it and for a really long time it was just a research project. In 2014 the serial podcast came out, which is a true crime podcast and it's, I'd been to uni by that point and I was like, oh, I, I remember I, there's a true crime story in my family um, we didn't really get to the bottom of it and yeah, because I'd been to uni, I'd learned a few research skills and that's when I dived headfirst into researching and I researched it for a really long time and what I discovered was so fascinating, I, was, I just decided I had to tell it. How I was going to tell it, I wasn't sure, I was like maybe I could do a podcast, who knows, but ultimately I decided to write a book. Yeah, I was very much a researcher before a writer.
0: Fantastic. And so with um, Warwick, so Warwick is your grandmother's cousin. Yep. Right. Yep. And your mum had – because in the, in the book you also weave in your own personal history. Yeah. And you share about – and your mum is such a – you know, it's you and your mum investigating, um, and you really tap into that, and which I, is is fantastic. It's almost like you know you've got these amateur detectives who, yeah, yeah. Are, and it, you write it so so well. It's actually you know you've got great narrative drive, but we're learning all these things as we go. Was your mum as? determined as you to get to the bottom of it or even more so? Uh,
1: Absolutely not. No, she wasn't. (laughs) Um, As I said, there was a few strange tales in my family and I think, yeah, she just loved family history and she definitely wanted to learn about all of them. But I think the fact that I had this sort of connection with Warwick, yeah. you know, obviously that personal connection of, you know, the belief that he was gay and that his murder was a result of that had, yeah, huge impact on me. So yeah, finding, getting to the bottom of not only what happened to him, um, but whether he was gay and, you know, what, you know, it happened in the forties and, you know, I had absolutely no idea if there were any gay people at World War Two. you know, at school, I certainly didn't learn that. And so I wanted to find out, you know, were they were there gay people during World War Two, and if so, what was their life like? So I had I had just endless questions that I wanted to answer, and that really drove me. And yeah, Mum was certainly fascinated with what I found, but yeah, I definitely took over the reins later in the project. And and how were
0: your family and extended family about you going and on this journey? Did did you have any opposition, or were they supportive, or they just wanted to see what what you came up
1: with? Um, mixed, I. Um, a lot of people were very supportive. Um, I did sort of do it by myself for a long time. I did ask a few people. It's it's really challenging researching a story that is so old that, you know, there wasn't a lot of people who were still alive who could talk to me about it. But I did uh, face a bit of opposition. I think, you know, it is hard... You know, with, with that older generation, you know, secrets are pretty common um, and especially for topics that are sensitive and hurtful and, you know, my grandmother was incredibly sad about it. So there was a lot of silence and apprehensive apprehension about me sort of admitting that we had a murder victim in the family, that perhaps there was shame involved with that, but I of the belief that it's the opposite, um, you know, of disrespectful. It's the utmost respect I could show to my ancestor in trying to find out what happened to him and tell his story uh, respectfully. So it, I guess, if nothing else, it it, it uh, encouraged really interesting conversations and created a space for me to have some really rewarding conversations with my family.
0: Yeah, I, I remember um, at your launch and you were speaking about how through this process, it really opened up communication within your family about, you know, talking openly and honestly.
1: Yeah, definitely. So um, a big part of my book is memoir. So initially I had just written... uh, The first sort of drafts were definitely just the crime. I just wanted to find out about the crime. I was so fascinated with the detective's investigation and what happened that I just wanted to tell that. And I just added one one chapter around a story about my sisters catching me in a dress and, you know, the, the shame with that and what, how it went down and just to explain why Warwick was so important to me. And I gave it to some writer friends who had to read and they ultimately said, oh, we love that. We want more of that memoir. So I went through an exercise of just sitting down and writing my experience of growing up queer in regional Australia. I grew up in Launceston, Tasmania. So I basically wrote that and, you know, a big part of uh, my uh, growing up queer uh, experience was defined by my family and those experiences like being caught in a dress and, address and uh, they weren't particularly supportive initially. So that did make it into the book. And yeah, before it came out, I had to work, talk to them and work out, you know, as anyone who's written memoir knows, it can be tricky um, to manage the family, but basically my strategy was to send them an email with a dot list of everything that's gonna be in it. And then we had a Zoom call. It was during the days of lockdown. And I was very nervous and sure enough, the first half of the call was very worrying because everyone was like, oh, no, I'm going to get cancelled or, you know, um, you know. And then halfway through, my sister said, you know what, I think we're actually just a bit sad and ashamed of the way we behaved and the way that we treated you back then. And that very moment, just something clicked with everyone and everyone realised that that's where that apprehension was coming from. And then from that moment, it just became a really lovely conversation. I talk about my coming out story, which didn't go down too well, especially with my parents, but my dad said at the end of that call, you know, I don't include everything in the book. Um, I'm not proud of what, how I behaved, but I'm so proud of you, of what you've done, and I just hope that other people out there can read about it and learn from it and, you know, get something from it. So. Yeah, hearing that from my dad, I just was not expecting that. And all these conversations came about because I read, wrote this book. So, yeah, I'm very grateful for this whole process.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Kudos to you and, and for, you know, your courage in doing that and sharing that, but also to challenge your family and then for your family to have that healing moment that you've brought about, which is phenomenal. And how was it for you hearing that from from your family after all these years?
1: Uh, So my family, so when I first came out when I was 17, um, there was a lot of very negative reaction, as I said. So both of my parents had very tragic uh, stories that they sort of associated with homosexuality. So my dad's best friend, um, who uh, ended up being gay, he unfortunately killed himself. Um, My mother, uh, you know, had Warwick's story. She had an uncle who was gay, who had a really um, tragic ending as well. So I think when I came out, they were like, oh no, our son is going to, you know, um, have this really tragic or potentially violent or bad health, you know, and so it it came from love, but as a 17 year old, you know, sitting them down trying to uh, say this, it was really hard to hear their reactions. But through the years, they came to terms with it and we all have got to a really good place now. But we hadn't probably addressed what actually happened back when I was 17 as much. So, yeah, I'm I'm glad that we did address that, that they did have an opportunity to apologise, that I got an opportunity to explain to them why that was hurtful, how much impact. And I think that's why I'm glad it's in the book is that it sort of teaches us that even just how impactful your words can be and just at those really important moments, your reactions and words in your inner circle of family. So I hope... That, that's something that people get out of the book as well. Yeah.
0: Thank you. So a cold case in 1944, how do you even begin to start to, <laughs> to investigate that?
1: Um, yeah, so that's that started back with Mum and I. So we figured it was also around the launch of Trove So, I'm sure lots of nods again. Um, So, Trove is the most amazing resource. I I hear horror stories of life before Trove, of, you know, (laughs) going through all the physical papers. So, thankfully, I avoided that. Um, But, yeah, Mum and I, you know, figured that if someone was murdered on the home front during World War II, that it potentially was news. And sure enough, it was. And basically, because it was such a mystery... The detectives, you know, published a lot of details about Warwick's final night alive just to try and unearth any sort of witnesses and um, try and piece together what had happened. So yeah, straight away I got a really broad overview of his final night alive and the investigation through Trove and that's sort of where it stayed for a long time and then as I mentioned once I picked it up again after uni I realised that maybe I should dive into the archives and I found uh, yeah, I got the murder files, so that's what the that's what it's called when the detective's notes. So there was a eight month nationwide hunt basically for the killer, and so yeah, 150 pages of very illegible cursive writing and acronyms. Um, so I had to piece that together. Yeah, had the full murder board, you know, with all the the maps and the suspects so, so and what, what room together. of the house was that. In? <laughs> I have to admit that it was a digital murder board. <laughs> But yeah, so uh, got got all the official documents. So the coroner's inquiry—they're amazing. All the testimonies from the eyewitnesses. Warwick was a soldier, as I said. So anyone who's um, was a soldier has an amazing archival, um, you know, evidence material evidence that's documented that I could access. So yeah, that they were sort of the the crux of. Um, what the investigation was. Did you
0: have people help you along the way to say, maybe try this archive or maybe
1: contact these people?
0: How, how did that happen?
1: Short answer, no. So I... Yeah, I sort of was feeling my way through. I often think back now, like if I was to do this again, I'm not sure if I could. If it would be a 10-year project. Um, a lot of it was d- like teaching myself what to do. I did, um, when I started getting towards the end, that's when I started to engage more with experts and they were really helpful because they could tell me um, the name of the document that I really need to look at or what that terminology meant or I sort of was building together a theory Um, And I wanted to run that past some experts to see if that was plausible. And, you know, thankfully it was. I also looked at a lot of other crimes that happened on the home front. So I didn't realise that there was quite a few murders during uh, World War II in Australia. So I looked into those as well and sort of to kind of understand the different scenarios and the social context. And I spoke to a criminologist who was able to say, you know, that's a pretty viable way of um, approaching this as well. So... Yeah, definitely. Towards the end, I had a bit of help, which was which was great.
0: And uh, one thing—well, there's many things you do well, but <laughs> in particular is capturing, you know, what it felt like to be in Townsville in 1944 and. And then you also follow Warwick's military journey to Papua New Guinea. So you yourself, you, you mentioned in the book, you you went to Townsville. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how was that sort of retracing? What was that like?
1: Yeah. So I actually studied photography at university. So my first, I'm quite a visual person, and when I was writing it, I really wanted to be it to be really evocative. I had this idea, like I was put to sleep in grade 10 with a grade 10 curriculum learning about World War Two, but what I was discovering was fascinating and I really wanted to make it fascinating for other people as well and a big part of that was bringing it to life and what it looked like, what it smelt like and at the other part of that was to centre sort of what people's first-hand experience would have been like. So on one hand, there was a lot of archival research for that, so there's an amazing resource out there um, by University of New South Wales called Australians at War, and you can listen to eight. I listen to like hours and hours, but like one person will have eight hours um, interview of the most amazing questions and the type that I'm fascinated with, like, what did you have for breakfast and what was it like to go to a dance and, you know, what was it, what was your relationship with your fellow you know, army soldiers. Yeah, the other archive was the Australian War Memorial, has amazing videos and photos and paintings. Um, So that was another part of bringing it to life. But yeah, as you said, I also did site visits. So I went up to Townsville because I really wanted to see the murder site and how it all went. And he spent his final night alive walking around, going to lots of different hotels and pubs. And so, yeah, I wanted to go experience that. And yeah, I ended up having quite a, um, not not a great experience up there. I believe it or not, a member of like the army, so an actual signalman came up to me and basically, you know, targeted me because I was gay and I clearly clearly wasn't from around town. Yeah. And he, he, yeah, he actually hit me across the face. Um, so yeah, it was absolutely awful. And I think a a running theme I discovered with this book is I was like, well, you know, 70-plus years ago, ancient history, how can it possibly be relevant? But it just kept coming up time and time again that it's not ancient history at all. And my visit in Townsville was testament to that as well.
0: Oh, that's terrible. The New Guinea girls, I got it right. I've been asking Jonathan, (laughs) what what, what were they called? And I just found that fascinating that you capture this day-to-day life of the army... in in new guinea during the war and there were these open quite effeminate men and they sort of were just allowed to exist right as part of this ecosystem and then it wasn't until reading your book that i even knew Mm. that these these men were there and that they were able to be as open as they were during the war um can you tell us a, a bit about that
1: yeah, I, um, that was one of the most rewarding things to discover doing my research. So as I mentioned, one of the big questions was, you know, were there gay people during World War II? And through that question, I um, found Yorick Small's work, who is an academic who has research, researched this a lot. I read his book and that's how I came to discover the New Guinea girls. I think another broad insight that I got that was absolutely fascinating was I think I had the assumption that you know, liberation is a very linear process, that people were homophobic and then now we're not. And it just wasn't the case at all. And what I actually discovered was sort of homophobia as we know it today actually started after World War II that, you know, it wasn't you know, wasn't all amazing for people back in the 40s, but there actually was a bit more space. People either sort of were ignorant to it, um, just thought, oh, well, as, as long as you don't bother anyone else, um, turned a blind eye. There was a few different reactions and not all of them were outright homophobia. And yet, as you mentioned, the New Guinea girls was one of the most rewarding things to discover. The way they were discovered wasn't by wonderful means. So the US forces, on the other hand, were very diligent with policing queer people during World War II, less so the Australians. And part of this investigation is they uncovered the existence of these effeminate men who were having sex with their soldiers. And they told the Australian forces and are like, we need to get rid of them. Side note, it was quite a complicated time because at the time, our homosexuality was thought of as a criminal act. And but they just heard rumours and knew it existed. So you can't you know persecute them based on a rumor so they're like what do we do with these guys and what they decided was that okay we'll let them come forward and if they admit to it then we can just discharge them and get rid of them that way sure enough 17 guys came forward and now there's the most amazing archival evidence of these men and what their life was like back in australia before the war and during the war They had, you know, it sounded like a fascinating time. They, you know, used to have jungle parties. They used to steal, you know, fruit and make grog. And they used to have wild, you know, relationships with all sorts of people. And they had sing-alongs. They used to, like, help each other, you know, with how to navigate the politics. They called each other bubbles and deer and love. And so when I was learning about these New Guinea girls, I was like, well, I didn't learn that in Year 10. (laughs) All I learned about was is, you know, hypermasculine, heterosexual, you know, vision. So learning about that, I was like, okay, that's that's a different national, hist- you know, war story. And yeah, it was really fascinating to learn about those those people.
0: So with the the 17, did they come forward to get out of the war?
1: Well, what? that yeah, it, that's the other trick that Yeah, exactly. So you got to I guess with all archival, you know, evidence, you always got to be critical around where people just sweet I get to be discharged but you know I think that it wasn't just their testimonies they were identified and they were known in fact there was other evidence of the reputation of Australians that went well beyond this investigation so I think their stories do you know hold up and
0: you mentioned post-war you know homophobia got worse why was that
1: it's linked in with the what happened post-war. Like, I think everything got quite conservative. It became about the family, um, you know, about rebuilding the nations after the awful experience. And I think with that, it really um, started to clamp down. I think maybe awareness started to increase as well of what was really happening. And so, yeah, I think the the policing got much more diligent. I did a bit of research into what happened in the military um, post uh, World War II as well and it basically escalated in the decades after World War II and it sort of peaked in the 80s probably because of uh, HIV AIDS and that's when our uh, awful stories of witch hunts and interrogations and you know really it was really really awful the way that queer service people were treated so yeah it, it got worse and worse and worse and you know in recent decades it has definitely got better but you know it's, it's pretty shocking and not that long ago, the way yeah, queer people were treated. Uh,
0: another uh, aspect of the book is, you know, during World War II in Australia and you have the American forces and you capture just how complex the legal mm. system was then, yes. uh, a force that was almost their own country within Australia. Can mm. you tell us a little bit about how that all segmented?
1: A lot of people know around the sort of the impact that the U.S. forces had on Australia. There was just a huge amount of them, and there was a lot of tensions between the Australians um, and the American forces. And I think, yeah, most commonly it's cited that that tensions because of women. So there was this perception that the Australian soldiers owned Australian women. But unfortunately, the US uniforms were very handsome and they were paid quite a lot and they could afford all the nice goodies. So the Australian women were very fond of these American soldiers, and that caused quite a lot of tension. But there was another side of all these um, Americans in Australia was that all these queer people who were in little communities in the US, um, quite conservative Christian, they were all pulled together and sent to the other side of the world. They had no idea where they were and it really gave them an opportunity to find each other and to create communities and to, yeah, sort of explore their sexuality as well. So, yeah, it was incredibly... There was lots of positives and negative outcomes of that. So as I mentioned earlier, I did look into other crimes that happened and there were some crimes committed by the US forces here. Um, and, you know, part of that was probably for the same motivations of, well, I'm on the other side of the world. That, that legal aspect that you're referring to was that um, the US soldiers even though they're in Australia, they just had to abide by US laws. So that was quite complicated. Um, There was a lot of examples of the US forces just kind of would rather just transfer them instead of dealing with the crimes that they committed. So yeah, it was an incredibly complicated and disruptive time with lots of different things changing. And I think one interesting thing that I learned through researching this book is that the Americans actually brought a lot of Uh, queer culture and what we sort of think of queer culture today as well because the Australians are a little bit behind the Americans when it came to that side of things so you know language and other sort of things has has actually stuck around so yeah it's another interesting side of the U.S. invasion of Australia.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. When you are researching you know, you're doing your detective work in the book and you, I think you describe it really well and it is quite complex how the local Townsville police and then I guess all the hurdles or barriers they have because you've got servicemen who are, you know, particularly if they're in the Navy, they're moving from port to port and the different jurisdictions. Was that something that you were aware of before you started?
1: Definitely not, no. yeah, so one of the big theories was that it was committed by a U.S. sailor. Um, so they actually this this is the reason why there was that nationwide manhunt. Basically, they went they got all the records of every ship that was in Townsville at the time and interrogated every crew. And yeah, the U.S. forces weren't particularly cooperative. There was one example of uh, the U.S. forces who didn't allow the detectives to do their job. Um, they didn't want them to meddle with their piece of their, you know, military base. There was another example of a captain outright lying to an Australian detective saying that, oh, uh, you know, don't worry about this guy, He, we just paid him off um, but actually he deserted and one of the theories was that it could have been a deserter who was not just running away from the war, they were running away from the crime. So, yeah, incredibly complicated to navigate that because they would have been well aware that Australian detectives didn't have a lot of power over them and that wasn't their primary objective of being in Australia. They were much more concerned with um, World War Two. So, yeah, that definitely hampered the investigation. And
0: were there crimes that happened at the time that did you think were related to Warwick's?
1: Yeah, so um, there was one... So there was another crime that the detectives discovered. Um, So up in Cairns, there was a gentleman who was coward-punched by three US sailors and he he died because he hit his head. It was an awful crime. And, yeah, one of the theories was that... It could have been connected, and that this these sailors were going up and down, you know, the Queensland coast and committing these crimes, and that's was one of the theories that they investigated. But as I said earlier, there was a, there was a shocking amount of crime. I actually had a long, long list, and I actually wrote about all the sort of. I nearly was thinking of calling it the Homefront Murders. I know that's a TV show, so I didn't call it that. Um, but uh, there's there was actually a shocking amount of true uh, of um, homefront murders, and not all of them made it into the book. Only the main ones that um, were considered to be related to Warwick's case.
0: Are you interested in looking at other cold cases in the future, or is this your sort of your detective research done?
1: Yeah, it's a tricky one. I, yeah, was really, I am drawn to true crime. But I think one thing, thinking about true crime and, because I looked at other gay hate crimes that have happened in the decades that uh, happened after Warwick. And I think that it can be quite, I'm more drawn to finding positive stories, I suppose. Yeah, um, yeah the there was a review of the book in The Conversation and uh, they picked up on, Um, Basically the book sort of is a testament to the belief of the, you know, inherently tragic aspect of being gay and the awful outcomes that can happen and these crimes and murders. And, you know, I'm certainly interested and drawn to it, but I think I'm still fascinated with the era. I love the 1930s and 40s. I'm still fascinated with queer history, but I'm more interested in happier stories that I (laughs) want to look into.
0: Yeah, but I I think The Boy in the Dress, though, is also... I think it's brave and it's... And to hear it from a gay man looking at these historical gay crimes and sharing your truth and shining a light on it and just going, this is not okay, we need that as well. I think it's, you know, yes, we can have lots of gay happy stories, (laughs) um, but this is our history and we need to to shine a light on it. I think you do that fantastically. Um, So we have a writing question. Okay, great. Which is any advice or top tips for writers out there?
1: Okay. Um, Now that you are a writer. (laughs) Probably the, like when I first got the book deal and I actually met the publisher, (laughs) one of the girls that I met just over lunch was like, you know, it's a, family history story and it's actually interesting um, <laughs> and she was kind of shocked by that And but I think the insight there is that you know, we all have an amazing story and mysteries that happen in our family. Um, but I think if your objective is to get published, it's always good to run it through. That is it interesting to someone else? <laughs> test, <laughs> you know. And you know, there's amazing you know stories out there. I've even you know talking about the book. I went up to Townsville and ran a workshop about researching and telling a family historical story, and. I was absolutely blown away by the most fascinating stories out there that people are looking into and also spending decades of their life looking into. So absolutely they're out there, but I think it's important to, you know, if you do want to write your family story to maybe test it with a few people to see if there's got sort of <laughs> a global interest or has a point that you want to make as well. The one another thing that I inherited from my mum was, you know, a, you know, real drive and determination. Um, to get to the bottom of it, as she was definitely a sort of person that could just spend days and days and days on Ancestry.com, for example. She went all the way back to her French royal royalty ancestors, which was very proud to tell people. And I also inherited that, you know, approach to work. So I think, you know, it's it can be really hard to finish a project like this without that is what I'm saying, basically, that, you know, I get up at six o'clock every morning and write for a few hours, every weekend writing. I spent weekends and weekends at the library. So it's just a huge commitment and a lot of time, you know, just being aware of that while you're embarking these projects and loving the project that you're working on and it meaning enough to you to really commit to that is really important because, yeah, that's the only reason why this book is in reality today.
0: No spoilers. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Do you do you feel like now, allegedly, um, know what happened to Warwick and who possibly
1: did it? I, I do put forward a theory in the book. The detectives uh, did come close to... They got a description of who they think did it. Um, there were a few eyewitnesses. But as it was committed in the 40s, so no technology, no CTV, no, no internet... So, basically, they just had a verbal description of a person. They were... So, the person who they thought it was, the Navy, little insight, the Navy, wouldn't allow the detectives to take that man to Queensland to be able to be seen by the eyewitness and identified. They basically just asked him, like, were you there and did you do it? He surprisingly <laughs> said no. Um, but, you know, there is a lot of evidence that suggest it was him, but there was enough evidence, so... That didn't happen, but yeah. So I think that's what was really fascinating about getting the murder files—that I could actually find out who they spoke to, what they said, all the evidence, all the I eyewitness mean statements that wasn't sort of um, covered in the newspapers. But yeah, that's—I I pull forward a theory of what I think happened. But you know, it's—it's it's a very complicated case, long time ago, and a lot of gaps in it.
0: Do you feel now, sort of, I don't know if at, "at peace" is the right word, but you feel like for Warwick, by you doing this, that there's some justice or how do you feel about that?
1: Yeah, it's tricky. Justice, probably not. I I guess I came to the conclusion, I think when I started, I was desperate to get a name of the killer and I was desperate to find out exactly what happened. But after I've researched all this, I, I think that, and I, I do cover this in the book, that he was really just a victim of the war and what the war had done to australia and the you know and i think when we think of war we think of battle fronts and we think of you know all that combat but actually the impacts were way beyond that and you know he there was a brownout so it was really dark and you know no one really saw what happened um they even reason he was from sydney he was in town so because of the war you know i think there's just so many things that happen because of war and how awful war is so i i kind of blame that more than any sort of one person yeah it's tricky i i definitely feel like i've you know, I'm, I'm happy with where I've got to with this case. Um, I'd like to think that Warwick would be happy that I've, you know, his ancestor, um, 70 years later, has picked up his story and valued it. He, he was only 20 when he died, so it was a shockingly short life. I actually, yeah, just went up to Townsville again for the second time for the Townsville Writers' Festival up there and I was able to visit his um, grave for the first time um, and that was a really emotional time. It's a gorgeous graveyard, impeccably well-maintained. There was someone there like pressing the grass while we were there just to make sure it's all perfect and covered in flowers and, you know, up in balmy Townsville where it's nice and warm and all the flowers smell beautiful and, I'd yeah, I like to think that he'd be happy with um, what I've done.
0: Yeah, I think it's a, it's a, a wonderful tribute to, to our, for what you've done. Mm-hmm. We have a shout-out question that we ask all our guests and that is... Uh,
1: firstly, how can everyone connect with you on um, socials? Um, I've actually really got into TikTok at the moment. Oh. Um, <laughs> I am even, I'm 31 and I was like, oh, I'm beyond it. Um, but, <laughs> but I looked into it and I've actually found my people. Um, yeah, they love queer history. So I've been doing all these little minute videos about all these other queer stories that I've found and people are loving it. Yeah, I haven't had that sort of response from Instagram or Twitter. Um, So find me on TikTok. I'm Jonathan Butler, author. Fantastic.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So you have the opportunity to shout shout out out
1: any LGBTIQA plus artists,
0: books, shows, organisations.
1: Yeah, I think... Aqua, which is Australian Queer Archives, they are an amazing organisation. They were really um, helpful. A lot of people associated with them were incredibly great. So Graeme Willett, who's involved with Aqua, was instrumental in writing this book and helped me with my research. They, I was able to go there and actually read all the testimonies of the New Guinea girls. So. Not only did I read about them in a secondary source, I got to go see that primary source and read through that at the archives, which was actually really amazing. And I actually volunteered there as well a little bit, um, which was fun because the, it was a very, like, rewarding experience because what Aqua do is that they are very, they actively acquire queer, hist- uh, queer um, material. And so things like posters for club parties and T-shirts from protests and, you know, things that I didn't actually think were important enough to be archived but they absolutely believe they are. So it's a very affirming place to be. But One sort of tangible thing I can shout out is they've recently done a report called 100 queer places and objects um, so it's like an amazing historical document it's a really beautiful report and you can learn about all these like places and objects that have a really interesting queer victorian story associated with them which yeah i've um, no surprises really loved reading and you know going to the places and finding the objects so yeah check that out it sounds like a uh, good thing for your TikTok funny you say that. (laughs) There is a few that have been inspired by that report. (laughs) Ah, brilliant, brilliant. And uh,
0: what is your hope for the LGBTIQA plus communities?
1: I think it's interesting with uh, equal marriage and the impact that equal marriage has had. So from a personal point of view, um, so my mother passed away while I was writing this book. So just a few weeks after their equal marriage announcement. So she never found out that it was a published book. She, she actually said to me, you know, like, you must tell Warwick's story when she was quite ill. And obviously I took those words quite seriously and I used to read um, chapters of the book to her Uh, in her nursing home. She had MSA multiple systems atrophy. It's a really awful disease. But sorry, I'm on a bit of a tangent there. But um, yeah, equal marriage. She was very happy. So it was a really important moment for me, for my family. It was wonderful and really joyous. I think one thing that we're all sort of realising now, though, is that that wasn't the end of queer um, rights. You know, it's It didn't actually do much for trans people. We still hear about youth suicide, especially, you know, in regional centres. So I think you might assume that homophobia is over and that it's all good now because of something like that, but we have a long way to go still. So I think, yeah, it's important to understand, you know, what... Where we are today, truly, and what's still to go, even though we can be happy that, that we have had some wins. Thank you very much.
0: And now we have Grace, our Blarney Books and Art and Port Ferry Book Reviewer. Hi, Grace. How you doing? Hello.
2: Here for the last recording. <laughs> yes,
0: for season one. That's uh yeah. Here's to quick.
2: many more seasons. It's
0: gone quick, hasn't it?
2: It has this year. My gosh. Mm.
0: Yeah, yeah. And uh, what books do you have for us today? He says.
2: I He season. says in anticipation: <laughs> <laughs> I have The Sunbearer Trials by Aidan Thomas and The Nancy's by R.W.R. McDonald's. <laughs>
0: now listeners i didn't know that grace was going to be reviewing the nancys her and joe at blarney books um cooked this up so oh, conspired
2: <laughs> so uh,
0: yes it's not shameless uh, self-promotion this has been sprung on me so <laughs> great
2: just take it <laughs>
0: <laughs> which one would
2: you like to start with first? well i'll start with the sun Bear trials as okay. i read that first Yep. Um, so I'll give you a little bit of a synopsis first because it's quite the book. But um, so long ago, there was Sol who formed the world with stardust. From the earth came Tira. Together, they created a race of godly children, golds, jades, and obsidians. But the obsidians were ruthless and sought only destruction. And so they were banished to the stars. And Sol ascended as the sun to keep their obsidians locked away. Stones were made out of soul's body, and the soul stone and the sunstones each keep the obsidian's from returning to earth. But every ten years, a sacrifice must be made to power the stones. The Sunbearer Trials: a competition between ten of the gods' children. The winner celebrated; the loser sacrificed. So this was one of the best fantasy books I've read in a long time. Oh, wow. I was completely invested in the story from page one. And having devoured it within 24 hours, I'm already chomping at the bit for book two, which is maybe coming next year. Not sure yet. Yeah. But it follows the story of Tio, the 17-year-old trans son of the Goddess of Birds. A jade semidose, not a hero like the Golds. They are the ones who become the sunbearers. So Tio has nothing to worry about, right? So this book was absolutely stunning after reading Cemetery Boys by Aiden earlier this year. I knew I'd be in for a literary treat with this one. And I was not disappointed. (laughs) You will step into this book and be immediately transported into their world with a mixture of The Legend of Korra, The Hunger Games, Percy Jackson, and Del Toro Quest. It's as colorful as a Quetzal's feather and as complex as a lyrebird's song. Highly recommend it.
0: Wow, that sounds incredible! So they've created this whole mythology. It's
2: like I haven't read Percy Jackson, and I know I need to, but um, definitely with that whole like gods, childrens, and sort of like the like semi gods and stuff. But yeah, it's a wild ride, and the plot twists were incredible. I literally had no idea what was going to happen until the very end, and. They left us with a bit of a uh, cliffhanger. That, that's one. <laughs> a bit of a cliffhanger at the end there. So yeah, I'm I'm so excited for book two.
0: Brilliant. So this is uh, this this is going to be a series, or
2: yeah, I'm okay. not sure if it's a duology or just, yep. or a series. I hope it would be a series. I mean, already yep. I'm like, this should be a movie. Yeah, cool. Fabulous.
0: Oh, that's but, fantastic. Yeah. So that's the yeah. Sunbearer Trials uh, by Aidan Thomas.
2: That is correct.
0: And deep breath. Um <laughs> your next book.
2: Then my next book is The Nancy's by You. <laughs> <laughs> now I, I've got to say, like um reviewing these two books together, they're both equally as brilliant and very, very different. <laughs> but like in the best way possible. Like I I was like trying to think of what would be my second book for the month. And I was like, you know what? I haven't read your book yet. <laughs> <laughs> So here we go. But okay. I said it's equal parts thrilling and hilarious. Set in a small town near Dunedin in New Zealand, which I am excited to be going to next year, uh, we follow the story of Tiffy Chan, an 11-year-old who is obsessed with her uncle's old Nancy Drew books. She's also desperate to solve a real mystery. So when her mum goes away on a cruise, her uncle Pike and his boyfriend Devon fly over from Sydney to look after her. And not long after a murder is committed, and so the Nancys has formed a secret detective club who will stop at nothing, even when they probably should, to catch the killer. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> so I was completely enamoured with the story from page one. And your writing is <laughs> so visual and I found it easy to relate to the characters. From Tippy to Uncle Pike to even Melanie, their backstories were fully formed and they all left their mark during this gripping tale. The plot twists were amazing and I quite like detective shows more than books, so I thought I had theories of who done it, but I was wrong and I was happy to be wrong. <laughs> the dynamics between Tiffy, Pike and Devon were so sweet, although perhaps saying yes to an 11-year-old to go on a murder mystery adventure probably wasn't the best idea, but it worked out in the end. And I love that quote of, in hindsight, perhaps taking you to a murderer's house was not the smartest move. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm really looking forward to reading your next book Nancy business as I'm so keen to see where the mystery or what mystery they'll solve next but all in all it's filled with quirky characters gay uncles you never knew you were always needed dark humor a little bit of gore a lot of swearing and genuine heartwarming moments it's perfect <laughs> oh,
0: thank you very much so <laughs> You're yeah kind of Fingernails digging into my palms. Um, <laughs> That's very, very lovely. It's all here.
2: good words. Don't worry. I love.
0: Yeah. No, and thank you. I mean that. That means the world that you enjoyed it. I respect your your uh, opinion. No, oh, thank reviewer, you.
2: So, yes, thank you. You're welcome. Ooh. I look. Maybe I'll review your next book. You? <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. Yeah. I won't tell you until the day.
0: Yeah, please don't. Please don't. <laughs> Oh, no, no I crazy.
2: thought it was great, so I'm re- I'm really looking forward to following those funny family dynamics as well.
0: Thank you. So,
2: thank you're thank welcome. You very
0: much. <laughs> so that was the Sunbearer Trials by Aiden Thomas and the Nazis by RWR McDonald, aka <laughs> you. A- 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 me. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Grace. And thank you so much. Uh, it's been such a joy speaking to you each episode. And, You're yeah,
2: welcome.
0: Have a great summer.
2: I know. And Christmas. Oh, my gosh.
0: Yeah. Wow.
2: <laughs> Coming up. Here's <laughs> to 2023 being brighter and lovelier than this year. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. I love that. Thanks, Grace.
2: You're welcome. Bye.
0: And we have uh, some time for questions. I believe Grace has a question for us. <laughs> Grace is our uh, book reviewer on QWS
1: podcasts.
2: Quality reads. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to ask if you have anything going on in the future, a new book perhaps?
1: <laughs> yeah. So I, I alluded to it before. Um, this was acquired in 2020, um, and there was a long, there's long gaps between each round of edits. So I had a lot of lockdown being trapped in my house. And so what I did, of course, was I acquired a series of letters from a a gay photographer in the 1940s, um, hundreds and hundreds of letters, and I read them all. And he had the most fascinating life. He had yeah, just who he met, who and it's sort of linked to what what I was saying before, is that we assume that, you know, being gay in the 1940s must have been pretty awful, but, you know, he was actually part of a queer world that basically ran the New York creatives' world. So he's had a really fascinating life and, yeah, I'd love to write about him and... But this time I'm experimenting with historical fiction, so... As I mentioned, this is non-fiction. It's very much narrative. I did want to tell a story. I did want to bring it to life. I want to be evocative. But at the end of the day, it's non-fiction and I had to, you know, make sure that everything was um, as close to the historical record as I could possibly get it. So it's been quite liberating to, you know, explore internal thoughts and, and feelings and truths and... I have a real connection with his voice and the way he spoke to his friends and his diaries and that sort of thing. So it's been a really rewarding creative experience to go through that. That's
0: amazing. So are you using extracts from the letters as well as the historical fiction or are you fictionalising the, the whole thing?
1: So the main thing I've taken from letters is just how his voice – so it's first person, the book that I'm writing, so I really wanted to get a sense of how he spoke Um and, yeah, his relationships and what actually happened. But, no, it's, um, it's fictionalised, so it's all, yeah, I've given myself a bit more creative freedom. But what all the characters are real and what happens is real, but everything else is my imagination.
0: Awesome, can't yeah. wait for that. And can I put an order in for the New Guinea Girls book? <laughs> <laughs>
1: you want to know more about them? <laughs> I'd love to. Yeah, yeah, amazing. they're amazing. I yeah, really love them too.
0: Thank you very much, Jonathan Butler. That's been fantastic. And if you haven't if you haven't read it, The Boy in the Dress, I highly recommend it. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Rob. Please check out our show notes on Words and Nerds, Blarney Books and Art and rwrmcdonald.com. links, reviews, and the interview transcript. Until next time, this is QWS Podcast.